Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's program, a small number of you receive updates about the Modern Art Notes Podcast from my Facebook page or from the program's Facebook page. Yesterday, Facebook announced that it was partnering with The Daily Caller, a right-wing website founded by white supremacist Tucker Carlson. Both the Southern Poverty Law Center and ProPublica have found that The Daily Caller has allied itself with and has published white supremacists. In response to this latest Facebook outrage, this week I'll be deleting all of my Facebook accounts, including the Facebook account for this podcast. This won't affect how 99.9% of you receive the program via iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, SoundCloud, or your podcatcher of choice. You just won't find me or us on Facebook anymore. On to the show. It's a holiday weekend, so this week's program will feature my 2018 conversation with Rachel Whiteread. After originating at the Tate Britain and traveling to the National Gallery of Art in Washington last year, the 30-year retrospective Rachel Whiteread is at its final stop, the St. Louis Art Museum. Curated by Molly Donovan and Ann Gallagher, it's on view there through June 9th. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by the Tate, which originated the show, of course. Amazon offers it starting at $34. Whiteread's work has long explored domestic spaces and objects through casting and the presentation of negative space. Her sculptures have given us new ways to look at familiar places and spaces and have nudged us toward new understandings of the familiar. Rachel Whiteread, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Alan Ruppersberg, Intellectual Property 1968-2018. to This major retrospective offers a chance to experience the pioneering artist's work in unprecedented breadth and depth. Ruppersberg's first comprehensive U.S. survey in over 30 years, Intellectual Property includes more than 120 works made over the past 50 years, from early assemblage sculptures and photo works combining text and image to drawings and collages. Recent immersive installations are shown alongside Ruppersburg's groundbreaking environments, Al's Cafe and Al's Grand Hotel, participatory projects that help put L.A. on the map as a center for conceptual art. On view February 10th through May 12th at The Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. In John Waters' Indecent Exposure, the trash auteur behind Pink Flamingos and Hairspray shares 25 years of his visual art. The blockbuster retrospective features more than 160 provocative and wickedly funny works born from Waters' personal obsessions with celebrity, crime, and lowbrow culture. Don't miss your last chance to catch this exhibition at its second and final stop, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. It's on view through April 28th alongside the photography survey Peter Hujar, Speed of Life, and a new site-specific mural by Bay Area artist Alicia McCarthy. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Rachel Whiteread, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi. Nice to be here. One of the co-curators of this exhibition is Molly Donovan, who is a curator at the National Gallery of Art. And the National Gallery in Washington has long had in its collection your great 1990 sculpture, Ghost. Molly Donovan, in her catalog essay, notes begins her essay by saying that in 2013, she received a letter from a Kentucky man named Graham Watley about his familial homestead at 486 Archway Road in North London, the same address at which you had cast Ghost. Did Ms. Donovan tell you about the letter? Or what, did it, what did you think of it? Yeah, no, sure. She she was really excited. She got in touch, told me that she'd, she'd got this letter and, and that they'd been in touch. 
It was just a really kind of sweet thing, actually, that that someone, you know, who who had lived there had kind of recognised, and it must have been such a strange moment for them to sort of recognise it and realise that, you know, it was their home. So, yeah, it was it was a kind of sweet, a sweet moment. You know, but these things, you know, I, when I made House and when I made Ghost, uh, you know, when I made House, there was a man that I knew that lived there and he w- was almost sort of like him and his family were almost like part of the story. But, you know, these places that I cast, you know, it's not about a particular person's home. It's about, you know, everybody's home and everybody's memory and everybody's feeling of what those kind of events and times in their life are. So, you know, and also obviously about the sort of sculptural elements, but there is this this kind of ephemeral, certainly not sentimental, but, you know, a, a, a sort of kind of empathetic way of thinking about what what these memories are to people and to somehow sort of draw from them and to help to kind of make them concrete in some way. So, yeah, it was good to good to hear that he had seen it and it obviously meant a great deal to him. It sounded like a very different experience than the one you had with Sidney Gale and House in 1993. So it was a surprising thing to read in a catalog essay and yet was kind of full of um, histories that are probably inevitable when you work the way you do. While, while we're on Ghost, I was struck by an interview you did with the Guggenheim's Craig Hauser many years ago, and you told him that you wanted to mummify the air in a room. You also told him that that was the phrase you were using in, in writing proposals to try to raise money to, ma- to make the piece. As somebody who's written his fair share of grant proposals, I can relate. It's a really poetic line. Do you remember why that phrase, mummify the air in a room, appealed to you? I mean, I think, you know, at the time, you know, I'd been looking at, you know, objects in the British Museum and, you know, other museums and and and, and done a few kind of trips abroad where I'd, I'd been very moved by, you know, sort of various kind of mausoleums and things that I'd seen. So, you know, it was very much a part of trying to sort of bring that kind of ancient history into into a sort of contemporary form as well so by using that for you know that that phrase mummify it seemed like a good way of kind of of joining the, those you know the sort of history uh, ancient history and and sort of you know modern sculpture together I suppose. Well let's go back to the beginning of your career uh, your time as a student your mother Pat was an artist my mother was an artist what did your mother make? She started, you know, when I was a little kid, she just, she painted and then gradually she started to use more mixed media and she, she made paintings and had sort of photographic elements and with celluloid and, and perspex attached. And then later on she made, um, in the 70s, she was making a lot of slide tape works which were really good, actually. And then later on, she worked with the computer and painting again. So, you know, she she really, you know, pushed herself and worked with some really interesting materials and things that were, you know, sort of, she was sort of pushing a language, I suppose. You started out as a painter, as, as an undergraduate, before you made sculpture. Did her experience as a painter or even her paintings themselves influence that direction in which you started out? No, uh, I can't can't say they did, but there was, I suppose, there was a certain element of of me getting 
kind of frustrated with the sort of edges of canvases and or the edge of edge of a canvas and very early on when I was a student I started to make things that sort of moved away from just sort of traditional painting as such and I suppose in a way that that was a kind of an influence that she had and something that she brought to you know my table. I I read you reference the edge of canvases in an interview you did with John Walsh about a decade ago rather odd interview which begins by him breaking his finger (laughs) which is all another story. So was the edge of the canvas with which you were getting frustrated the edge of the surface of the canvas facing the viewer or kind of the edge where the stretcher, kind of the side where the stretcher... Yeah, well, the the sides, the edges, the sides of the painting, so kind of where the canvas stops and the wall begins, you know, that was the the place that was annoying me. (laughs) So what about it was, was annoying you? How was it, how was that? I think the the way that things just sort of stopped... In a, you know, at the edge, at a straight line and at a corner at a, you know, a 90 degree angle. You know, I was obviously a sort of frustrated sculptor trying to get out, and I, but I hadn't quite figured that at the time. It was just, you know, I started to make shaped canvases and I started to work on wood and gradually things came down to the floor. I began to cast things and all of these elements would sometimes sort of join up and other times were quite sort of disparate things on the wall. And then eventually uh, when I applied for postgrad and I applied to do painting at one art school and sculpture at the other and I got into both and I was like, oh, I'm really not sure what I'm going to do. And, and but felt actually there were two tutors that I, I had and knew that I would be able to have as my teachers. And it was really their influence that that made me um, go into sculpture, I think. And uh, yeah, it was definitely the, the right decision. Before we get to Slade and one of your instructors there, I want to ask about as far as I understand the story, you discovered casting at uh, while you were at school in Brighton when the artist Richard Wilson brought a kind of casting workshop with him. That's the phrase I've seen pop up a few times. What yeah, exactly... that's right. It was a kind of mobile fa- foundry, something you'd never be able to do now, but in the days of turning a blind eye, <laughs> we were able to do crazy things like that at school. So, yeah, it was great, actually. Did it? Did his mobile foundry interest you right away, or was it more of a slow burn? It was, yeah, I mean, just the whole sort of, you know, the interesting part for me was having something that was a solid that you turned to a liquid that then became a solid again, and that was, you know, that you could pour it into a, a space and then you'd have this this kind of captured whole and that was what I kind of loved about it and immediately became something that I knew that I would start to work with. One of the first or earliest things you cast was the inside of a swimming cap. Part of what I love about that is it's almost impossible to come up with a mental picture of how that might work but why did you do that and why a swimming cap? Well, actually, that was a little bit later. That was after I left school, art school. The, one of the first things that I cast was a spoon. I pressed a spoon into sand, and then I cast the sp- poured metal into that space. And you know what? I was left with was a, a, a spoon without its spoonness, and you know without the sort of dip. So that was really that was the first thing that I made, and. When I left art school, I went to, 
I did this sort of foundry course and that was where I cast a swim cap. And that was really about trying to make a the sort of shell of a head really maybe the space the space that captures the inside of your head something like that did it work did you get something out of it yeah yeah it's actually in this show yeah it's in the in the sort of cabinet of curiosities that i've got and later on you cast your ear in bronze yeah i also cast my ear in bronze yeah that was another thing (laughs) that i cast yeah while we're talking about schools and school experiences, and this is getting ahead a little bit because we haven't talked about your interest in domestic environments and things that are a part of domestic life, but we'll get there. One of your teachers at Slade was Philida Barlow, who has twice been a guest on this program. And Ms. Barlow has long made work about domestic environments, including some of her very first sculptures, temporal objects that exist now, you know, exist in air quotes, exist now only as, as photo documentation. Do you remember if she taught about domestic environments or engaging domestic environments or talked with you about it back then? No, I don't I don't remember that at all. I mean I, I Philida was someone that was a very, very good teacher, but she she would talk mainly about what was in front of her. So she would be reacting to what I was presenting her and and didn't really talk i mean she did talk about her own work in in lectures and things but she never really brought things back to her work uh with me anyway and it it wasn't till later i mean i was actually her assistant for a while as well so and i you know worked in her kind of crazy studio at home with her sort of five kids running around and you know just and it was a very much a sort of domestic filled environment a work environment but yeah, no, I mean, F- F- no, Philida didn't talk to me about that stuff. Yeah, short answer to that. <laughs> so were you her assistant when she was putting forms on top of ironing boards and televisions? No, I, it was later on, later on. she was. It was when she was really starting some of her much bigger, bigger works, yeah, larger works that were more sort of reacting to spaces, big spaces. One of your early pieces is titled Closet. It dates to 1988. It was in what I think was the first exhibition you had after finishing at Slade. And we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. But you constructed the piece. It's a cast of a single standalone wardrobe, you know, the kind that stands by itself in the middle of a room. And then you covered it with black felt. Why did you think the black felt was necessary or useful, and why did you move away from using it again? Well, it was really, it was illustrating that that piece was really about a particular experience or series of experiences when I was a child about hiding and hiding in a cupboard and and trying to make concrete that that black furry space that you get in you know darkened rooms or darkened spaces and there was also something about sitting in the wardrobe in my parents wardrobe actually and there was also my mum you know used to make his clothes so there was a box of fabric in there and and I would sort of sit in the fabric and could smell the fabric and and you know it was just sort of an evocative way of, of sort of trying to reproduce that whole experience so not using the felt again was less a formal decision just and and more of having addressed that experience and not needing to do it again yeah exactly yeah 
Yeah, it wasn't really something that I was, you know, trying to reproduce, you know, a whole kind of set of furniture <laughs> covered in felt of different types. I think, so it was about five years after Closet, so about five or six years after you're done at Slade, that you have the opportunity to do House, the piece that, that made you famous. One of the best-known pieces of, of art of the last half century. And I don't want to talk a ton about how it happened and all that. There, You've talked about it a lot. There's uh, a Q&A about it in, in the really excellent catalog that accompanies this exhibition. But I, there are a couple things I'd, I'd like to talk about, how you approached it in the context of, of other pieces. House was intended to be temporary, ended up being up for 80 days um, during the course of its run. That that was extended to 80 days. It was originally, I think, going to be up for six weeks. And I mean, there were, there, were, there were difficulties with timing and when the piece opened and all that. But But it ended up being up for 80 days. Because you got to do House, and because House was so well-received, you had the opportunity to do significant and effectively permanent pieces in very different landscapes or cityscapes, and quite quickly. When you went from working on something you knew would be temporal to something or some things that you knew would be permanent, was there a different range of questions you had to think to, or was it just one to the next? You know, every every piece that I make in the outside environment, you know, in the world that has a landscape around it, I, I think very, very carefully about. And, I, you know, I've been, you know, I've, I've produced, I, I can't remember how many, but, you know, half a dozen pieces that are permanently out there. And they're all very different. They're all in very different places, but each place is very specific in particular. You know, I've only ever made, I've never made you know what I call plop art you know I don't make things that just kind of go somewhere that you know I haven't really thought about the its immediate surroundings they're all very much a part of its the surroundings are very much a part of the the sort of structure of the piece as it were and so you know with something like the water tower in New York or now cabin that's on Governor's Island in New York there's a piece in Norway in a, a on a fjord there's obviously the Holocaust Memorial. There was a, a, a temporary piece that I made for the Plinth on Trafalgar Square. And I was really thought with all of those pieces about its very specific location and what that meant. And sometimes, you know, like with the Holocaust Memorial, for example, that meant it took five years to make because of lots of reasons. But, you know, they, uh, politically they decided they wanted to move it from that location and I sort of refused to let that happen and I'm very glad that I stuck to my guns because it you know it's there in the middle of the city Vienna in a very kind of interesting historical location and it's the you know perfect place for the work so the things are very much designed to be where they are and the you know the the way in which I think about making the work is very much to do with its its very specific and particular environment. Is that specificity about audience, or is it about what's around the work or the context? Or? Uh, uh, everything, you know, audience, what surrounds it, what's next door to it, what's across the water from it, uh, what it's sitting on, you know, all of those things. You know, I try to be very careful about, you know, and I don't overdo it, you know, and all the work is very sort of understated, and, you know, I try to be very careful about all of those things and that it is you know it has a sort of quietness in the landscape and that it doesn't 
you know, shout too much. You mentioned the piece in Norway along a fjord. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of the place, I'm afraid, but it's in Gran or Gran, Norway? Gran, yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine doing things in places as different as the middle of Vienna or Governor's Island in New York City and and as uh, remote and different as, as, as Gran. What about doing a, a piece that so many fewer people will see as an attraction? You know, it was something that I really enjoy thinking about and doing, and it's, mu- you know, as much a part of the piece as anything else is the, the way in which very few people see it and that it you know it almost exists in your mind's eye and you know I've made two pieces in particular in the desert in California um, near Joshua Tree in a place called Pioneer Town and I you know it was really about making these things which exist and just live there and very few people will see them and you know for me there's a real sort of poetry to that and that the journey becomes a much as much a part as, of the sculpture as, as actually being there, looking at it, the actual travel and the journey to get to it and the anticipation and the memory afterwards is, is, is as much a part of the piece. Well, speaking of journeys, when you, when you made the Holocaust Memorial in Vienna, you twice visited Washington, D.C. to spend time with Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Why did you do that and what did you get out of it? Well, I... Uh, I was looking. I'd been. It wasn't. It wasn't just Mylins Memorial. There were lots of you know the Arlington Cemetery and various other places that I went to that felt very much. There was great dignity in the way in which the sort of memorialization of these kind of terrible things that had happened had been dealt with. And you know, I also went around Normandy. I went to a lot of the graveyards and. Holocaust sites in Germany and you know I really I did a lot of research a lot of miserable research (laughs) looking at these places that really had so much kind of heartbreak etched upon them and I wanted to not only sort of understand what they were I also wanted to I suppose get some sort of you know osmosis from them and, and really just feel how people reacted and you know I think one of the most extraordinary things about Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial is is the the way in which people react to it um, and especially the vets that 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 go there and you know it's really an incredibly uh, moving place and and very beautiful as well sort of poetic beautiful and sort of devastatingly sort of succinct actually and yeah yeah, it's a very, very good memorial. Were there things that you learned from or took from that traveling research program that you just described that you think lived on or made its way into subsequent work, work after Vienna? I think undoubtedly whatever one you know looks at as an artist and... and and feels that you know that the, the the things that you see influence what you do, you know whether that's looking at art or or you know historical memorials or landscape or literature or music or you know whatever it is that that you're using as a as a kind of way in which you know to help you kind of 
understand and absorb things. Yeah, they, you know, they, they always somehow come out in the work. I think not necessarily in a direct way, but certainly in, in, in a, a way that's uh, sort of obtuse and, you know, poetic, I suppose. You know, there are, it's a language, isn't it? It's a language that helps you develop your own language. And, there's a, you know, it's what creativity is. You know, as we've been talking about these these early works, not not only are you tackling big ideas, but you're doing it with with big objects. Closet is is pretty good sized. Ghost is 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 quite large. It's room size. I, I, I yeah. think <laughs> lots of people have seen it at the, at the National Gallery. And then, of course, you did you did House. So you started working big right away. In hindsight, and, and working at scale is something that I think a lot of artists have trouble with, especially when they're younger. So in hindsight, looking looking back, why do you think you were able to handle scale so deftly so quickly? I think it was to do, it, you know, it was more to do with the nature of the objects that I was working with, and they were a particular size, and I wasn't having to invent a size. I was using what was there. So it gave me... a a kind of quick way in really to to scale actually and yeah I mean I think it was the nature of the domestic objects that I was using you know and whether it was made casting a hot water bottle which is small or casting a whole room or an entire house which is big and bigger you know and so all of these things are absolutely a part of our our surroundings I mean I never think I never think that I, I you know I remember a good a good friend of mine, Kiki Smith, saying to me years ago, you know, Rachel, you you can't you you know you're a woman who casts the biggest things that uh, you know any women any woman casts in sculpture, and that's kind of amazing. And I was like, really? You know, I, it just hadn't occurred to me that you know the scale that I was tackling was was that big. And um, as I say, it's just part part of the nature of the objects that I use. I appreciate the humility of that answer, but one of the the fun things about <laughs> reading about your early work is reading about how it got made, and and often, including in this catalog, seeing pictures of how how it was made. And among the challenges you faced in the late '80s and early '90s was just the simple technical challenge of how to do these yeah, things. Yeah, a lot that of those had... things, a lot of the objects that you see are. And that are in this show, in the sort of uh, first and second rooms of the show, that you know they're all in sections, so they were all able to be moved either by myself alone, or by myself and one other person. And you know that was something that had to be because I couldn't afford assistance, and you know it was me and my partner, who's now my husband, you know helping me every now and again, you know occasionally being able to afford an assistant, but. You know, generally it was making stuff on my own. Sometimes I, I you know, with one piece that, that's not here, but it was a table piece that I made, and I got my hand stuck underneath the work when I was trying to move it, and um, and I was there for about two hours, sort of bent over, trying to work out how to kind of get my hand out without breaking my knuckles, uh, <laughs> which I did eventually manage to do by a strange contortion but um yeah managed to not break my right hand but you know those things were just you know very much part and parcel of how things had to be made through you know 
not having much money really at the time. So, yeah, that was it. Was, yeah, it was just how stuff got made. As, as I was as I was reading other interviews you've done and catalog essays across a number of catalogs, I was repeatedly amazed at at your casual mention of a thousand pounds here, a couple thousand pounds there, and what you were able to do with so relatively little, this is a terrible phrase, I'll regret right away, capital availability. <laughs> yeah, my capital availability was certainly limited. <laughs> I was skint, yeah, I think is a better way of putting it. Yeah, no, I was really skint. and But, you know, I think that was also one of the things, you know, I'd I'd go through... Uh, I call we call them skips in the UK. I think you call them dumpsters. But go through dumpsters and get polystyrene that went in the centre of the plaster pieces, and I'd cut it all up and you know make these cores, which you know made it cheaper and lighter. And but I always wanted a certain solidity to the work, so you know they were never, you know you you could never sort of tap on them and they'd feel empty. They always felt sort of like full objects. But, you know, plaster, the the early casting plaster that I used was, you know, quite cheap plaster. You know, I used more expensive stuff later on that was more durable. But, you know, it was really about trying to just be as economic as possible and, you know, trying to get as much out of uh, my buck as I could. <laughs> you know, I've read you talk about that tapping test before and wanting things not to sound hollow. I love that idea, but I'm not sure I understand it. Why? Because obviously a visitor, a viewer can't tap the artwork. Why, why was that important? Why was that a useful test for you? I, I think for me, it was just a, about the solidity of something and to have you know, to have it feel really there, you know, really present in a space. And, you know, it's a bit like going to one of Richard Serra's blocks and tapping it and realising that it's just made out of tin. You know, it, it wouldn't be right. You know, it has to have a, a, a real density to the to the surface and the feel of it. It has to go through to its core. Yeah, I think, you know, it's the same same thing, really. My guest is Rachel Whiteread. We'll be right back after a break. From the Buddhas of Bamiyan to the temples of Palmyra, why is the world's cultural heritage being erased? On April 30th, Getty President James Cuno and author Terence Ward explore answers to this question and offer ideas about how to stop the continuing destruction. Get tickets and learn more about this free talk at getty.edu 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. 
And now back to my conversation with Rachel Whiteread. So switching from the material to the the conceptual and and, and underpinning of, of of how you think through works. At the time of the drawings show that went from the Hammer to London and a few other places, you did an interview with the Tate's Bice Curriger, who, who I hope I'm saying that right. Beachy um, Curriger. Beachy yeah. Curriger. Yeah. Thank you. And several times in that interview and in other interviews, but especially in this one, you talk about not wanting to be nostalgic and about not wanting to be sentimental. First, why not? Uh, You know, I didn't want to be, you know, that sort of make a sort of way into the work that that was, you know, tapped into sort of pure emotion. I wanted it to be kind of intellectual as well, I suppose. And yeah, I think that's probably the angle was that I just didn't want it to be this emotive response to something. I also wanted something that was a bit more, yeah, sort of ethereal, but also intellectual so that there was a, a, a way in which it wasn't just touching you in your heart you know it was also touching you in your head is there a particular work or group of works that might serve to illustrate how you successfully in your own mind eliminated that how you resisted countered that impulse or feeling I think you know with library with the library pieces you know there's a ta- there's quite a tough table piece in this show with three tables you know I think maybe some of the other works you know certainly shallow breath and there's another mattress piece there's something more I suppose emotive with them you know they're very they feel very human in a, in a lot of ways so there's a sort of toughness to some of the other works uh and the floor pieces and you know yeah I suppose yeah there's a kind of different way in I suppose when you're looking at those but you know I think I do think that all the work that I do has 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 a element of both of those things and you know and it always will because it's just how I think you know that I when I'm working I'm thinking from both a kind of kind of artistic and art historical angle but and I'm also thinking of uh, uh, the kind of poetic language that I've developed over the years which also has you know an emotive edge to it so I think you know when all those things are established together then you know that's what that's what you come up with that's what I come up with I think one of the things I really like in the work and have liked for as long as I can remember having looked at it is that the work refers to history and the past and capital H history without, I mean, you know, if nostalgia is a present memory of something that maybe never really happened, (laughs) the work feels like it's addressing history without kind of simpering about it. It stands up to it. And I've, and I think that's hard to do. And I think it does that. And I really, I think that's really about as good as it gets. So we talked about the scale of the work, and I think I've used the word humility a couple times. And I think one of the things that's rare and successful in your work is that there is a confluence of enormity and humility. Even a really large object in a really complicated place like the Vienna Memorial, both enormous and and humble. Do you think that those are two things that have always existed well next to each other, in your work or do you think that maybe that came out of doing the Vienna project I think it was especially apparent in the in the Vienna project but you know I don't think ghost is that dissimilar really 
it's just been shown in a different way. You know, it's not, you know, its location is within, you know, the the rooms of galleries where, where, rather than a, a sort of historical, very, very emotive square in the middle of Vienna. I mentioned that Guggenheim interview you did with Craig Hauser a while back, and in it you talk about uh, how other art has influenced your, your work, and you noted that you think there's a particularly American influence in your work, American art from the 1940s onwards, and that you admired the scale and ambition that American artists had at that time, particularly in sculpture. And there's a whole essay on on that in the catalog for this show. Um, talks about Tony Smith, Louise Bourgeois, Richard Serra, Carl Andre, Ava uh, Hesse. What about the scale and ambition of of that American work attracted you to it? I think that the, the, there was something that happened in America, you know, sort of post-war American art, which was very exciting and and it really changed it was a sort of game changer for contemporary art and and the beginnings of minimalism and the you know someone like Eva Hesse or Louise Bourgeois there was much more of an emotional and you know edge to stuff but you know people like uh you know Carl Andre and Jard and you know all of these you know, Richard Serra, were making stuff or making work, you know, it was, you know, people like uh, Linda Benglis as well, you know, were all making works that were, were were kind of reactive. They were to do with materials. They were to do with space. They were to do with uh, intellectual rigour. They were uh, really uh, fighting against something that was completely... You know, abstract. Well, not that they they weren't fighting against being abstract. They were fighting against things that were, had been uh, very much uh, the antithesis of that. And I think, you know, that area then, you know, it was a huge influence. I think on British sculpture, and you know, Henry Moore and Anthony Caro and you know Philip King and all, all of those people that came up a little bit later. You know, they obviously were hugely influenced by the American the situation of what was going on in America. And, you know, the, the the materials that people used, it was often just, you know, it was about stuff and it was about up and down and in and out and, you know, just really things that were incredibly kind of basic but then really beautifully manipulated and poetically manipulated and, and that's really sort of stood the test of time extraordinarily well and, you know, some of the greatest you know, pieces of contemporary sculpture. Was the ambition and scale of those those artists and their work attractive, particularly because in pre-Thatcherite and Thatcherite Britain, things seemed somewhat more dour and less possible? No, I, I don't think that that was part of it. It was more to do to do with the you know, the stuff that was going on in America, it wasn't about what was going on in the UK for me. It was about what was happening here and what was, you know, what was, you know, it was, you know, it's a bit like cinema as well. You know, the stuff that was going on in America with cinema was just, uh, you know, there was a lot of interesting stuff, you know, really interesting stuff that was going on in the UK. But there was also stuff of a kind of scale in America that was just so different. And, you know, so 
I think those things were were were, were a, a big influence on on European art and culture, you know, and uh, uh, you know, and I think that's changed. Now, it's very different now, but you know, there was a very particular period in American art history which was a huge influence upon um, Europe and on, on post-war Europe, and you know, maybe it was because you know, something to do with the war not really happening here. Of course, America was involved in the war, but it wasn't actually, you know, so that maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe there was something about, you know, what what had happened with the sort of history of Europe that was had made people, you know, frightened or, or, or humble or something that, had, you know, it hadn't affected America in the same way. So maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. I've never read you talk about Jackie Windsor's work before did you did you know it was it important if you did know it uh yeah 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 no I I I'm uh, yeah very aware of her work yeah she I mean she wasn't so much an influence uh you know I'd really say the two people that were the main influence were, were Louise Bourgeois and Eva Hess and you know Jackie Windsor I did like her work and I do like her work but you know something to do with the the, the kind of the repetition that that has never really been my thing, <laughs> you know. And she was very particular in the, in the way in which her things were made and the kind of repetition of elements that, yeah, it just wasn't really. I thought of Windsor because there is a tension in her work between what we can see on the outside and can't see on the inside, but know is there. There's a tactility. I'm I'm a big fan of hers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I I mean, I you know, I I definitely like her work but it you know it was never an influence in the same way that the other artists were throughout your work almost from the beginning not quite from the beginning into the present you have made works that light passes through uh, works that are either clear or opaque and work through which light does not travel at all is that a meaningful difference for you is that a is that an opposite that interests you? Yeah, completely. That's exactly the right word. I mean, I I was uh, when I was making the plaster works, uh, and then I started to make work in rubber, and then I wanted to use something that was transparent and that was a there was a, a you could make into a block so that the ins you know I knew that if you did that, then the, the kind of exterior of the work would almost be reflected on the interior. And that was exactly what I wanted to try and do. So in the in the works that are here, for example, the twenty five spaces of the cast of chairs, that that was exactly what I was trying to do was to make this this happen, this sort of visual pun, I suppose, in a way. It was. So take a piece like Monument, which was the Trafalgar Square Commission you did, um, the fourth plinth piece. The way light moved through it, the way it was clear, was that more important to you? conceptually or visually um well both equally you know it was really you know the way in which i said i wanted to mummify the air inside a room for ghost well with with the plinth what i wanted to do was to make a pause to make a pause in trafalgar square and uh, almost like a breath or a pause you know and uh, an intake of breath looking at this thing. So that that was really what I was trying to do. And, you know, there was this amazing lump of resin, you know, sort of five tons of resin or something. And, yeah, yeah, I wanted to make it look as sort of light as possible. Is 
monument related to water tower in ways that go beyond the technical i mean i think in 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 the the, the way in which it captures light and you know sits within the sort of urban landscape in that way and has this sort of quiet moment this sort of jewel like quality i you know all of those things were were you know certainly a sort of common common language so far as I know, and it's always possible that you did work for private collectors that, that I don't know about, Water Tower was your first very big New York City commission. When you were, and you did it for the Public Art Fund, did you at the time think that you had made, you had made your bones in London with a spectacular public commission that was in a public place? Did you feel pressure or anxiety about trying to make a similar splash in New York? Uh, well, yeah, it took me a while to to decide what I wanted to do. And I, I'd been given all of these, you know, great locations on the ground in New York. And I didn't take them up and just said no, you know, to Tom Eccles, who was the director at the time. You know, I just said, Tom, I, I just can't work like this. I don't I don't want to compete with at ground level with New York City. It's just not going to work for me. And that was when he said, well, have you got any other ideas? And I, you know, said, well, I've been kind of looking up and, you know, I'd love to try and work with a water tower. And, you know, he said, what kind of thing? And I suggested making it in resin. And he was like, yeah, OK, great, let's do it. And, you know, it wasn't quite as easy as it sounds, but it was a very difficult technical thing to make. But yeah, it was, it was, it, it took a, it, I think it was, I think I had three trips, three reckeys to, before I figured out what it was I was going to do. So these things don't come easily to me. <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, hey, I know what I'll do immediately. You know, it's often, is a lot of sort of walking about and scratching my head. And I, I traveled all over. New York and, uh, you know, Manhattan, and I think I was over in Brooklyn as well trying to find a site. But Was it useful to you that Water Tower was up in the air and not on the ground and thus didn't have to, air quotes, compete with, with House, which was on the ground? Yeah, I think it was a lot to do with that, but also to do with, you know, finding something that was what I called the kind of furniture of New York, and it felt more domestic in a way and uh, in a way I suppose felt more manageable because of that. You have made a lot of work about floors. The the drawing show I mentioned earlier about nine, eight or nine years ago had lots of drawings of floors. They were some of I think the best things in the show and you've made a number of, of floor sculptures going back to about 1992. Why were floors interesting and did why they were interesting do you change over time? Well, I first the first floors that I started making were the sort of underneath the floors. So they were the bits in between the floorboards and the space in between the floorboards. So it was still very much about exploring the the space inside things and uh, underneath things. And and then a little later on, I started to use you know casting from the impressions of floors. So to do with what had happened to the floors. So. The fact that they'd been walked on, trodden on and, you know, used or the tiles had been pulled up or, you know, had been a place of meeting and of prayer. You know, there was a, two pieces that I made 
that were cast from the floors of a synagogue, another was from another kind of um, workshop place, another was from very domestic environments. So, you know, they were always about, the, you know, I suppose the passing of of people and the passing of, of kind of, you know, traffic and getting from A to B in a house or whatever, you know, in the same way, that the, in a way that the staircases are. And they can be, or the staircases were sort of visual conundrums, but, you know, the floor pieces, what I really liked about them was the sort of, the sort of, you know, kind of dumb quality of them. And also, you know, there's a big reference to them with Carl Andre's floor works, and that was always something that I enjoyed kind of referencing. Is all of what you just said true of the drawings as well, or are the drawings a little bit different? The drawings are a little bit different. You know, often the drawings are uh, are kind of ways of worrying through how to make a sculpture and, you know, just ways of thinking it through. But then also, you know, the ways of of putting my my enjoyment of painting, actually, and, you know, sort of, you know, playing with colour and form and, you know, on, on paper. You know, and I love paper and I use all sorts of different types of paper and you know, all sorts of other materials to make the drawings. You know, they're not just pen and ink or, you know, I often use kind of varnish and watercolour and silver leaf and all sorts of stuff. You also use graph paper a lot, but you don't exactly mind the lines to any great degree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, they, I, I use them as a, as a, you know, use the graph paper as a kind of grid, as a, as a reference, actually. And, yeah, it's a kind of a way in which you can work with a pattern or or yeah well you know it gives the paper form i suppose so the floor sculptures have a wonderful tension between abstraction and representation and a whole lot of your sculpture does as a viewer it seems important to me as a maker is that tension between abstraction and representation important to you or is it just the way it works the way it happens yeah it's definitely important it's always what you know. It's always what I've worked with, being on the edge of those things. And yeah, I mean, I can't remember the question you asked me earlier, but that was sort of what I was trying to say. That I I kind of work with these two things, and I always have done, you know. And uh, it's it's yeah, the way in which I like to play with stuff, make it happen. In that drawings show about a decade, there was about a decade ago, there was a section of drawings related to the bookcases, whether it was the bookcases for Vienna or for Venice or wherever. Can you think of specific things you learned from the drawings that made it into the sculptures? No, I, you know, they, no, not really. I'll tell you one interesting thing about drawings is I can, virtually every drawing I've ever made, I can recall the place in which I made it. But other than that, drawings are very much, you know, they're things that happen in a moment. And, uh, you know, sometimes elements of, of the maybe painterly quality of the drawing comes into the sculpture. But as I said, they're often very much about kind of mapping things out and, and working out how something is going to be made or just just clarifying uh, something in my head before I make it. So in, in recent years in the sculpture, you have often scaled down, uh, made made small kind of handheld or hand-holdable, hand-sized objects. I think the phrase that Lindsay Young uses in the catalog is shelf-based, which is is, is perfect because some of them are indeed installed on shelves. 
What are the challenges in going from working at and thinking on the scale of something like the staircases to the scale of the much much smaller objects that you've been working with more recently? Well, the the, the really small things that I made it was it was very much a decision that I I decided to do when I had small children. And I would be making some very large works, lots of very big things. And, you know, I had become, with a lot of it, the work, it's almost like a producer and a director of my work rather than physically doing, making it myself. And I really wanted to get back to the, 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 the small things and to, to feel like I was really kind of engaged physically and creatively engaged in things. And I used a lot of colour and I used a lot of objects from my kind of domestic life. And, yeah, it was a, it was a great time, actually. It was, you know, for a year, a couple of years, I, I worked like this. And, and it was really playing. It was getting back to playing in the studio. And it was it was very sort of satisfying. And, you know, and also, you know, the the work, each element that I cast, it was a sort of thing within itself. But then I had these sort of shelves and plinths and places in which I'd cast, uh, put the casts. They became almost like the uh, page, you know, and it was almost like putting a drawing together, just having these elements and, and, and putting them together. Yeah, it was a, it was an enjoyable way of working. With some of these works, and, and I guess maybe more recently, you've been capitalizing the titles of artworks in Out for, for the door pieces, for example, or Blue. Why? Uh, sometimes they feel like uh, shouts and sometimes they feel like whispers. I think it's something to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And finally, I've never touched a uh, Rachel White Reed sculpture and I know I'm not supposed to and I think we all do. But your surfaces do tempt tactility. Is that intentional or important to you? Uh, well, it certainly is to me, and in the making of the work, sure, yeah. And uh, the tactility of it is really very much a part of how I d sort of reference the object that it's being cast from, and you know, and often work very hard to to bring out that surface. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, yeah, and it gives you, you know, it kind of gives you more to look at. <laughs> And, and I think maybe in a way, I mean, Richard Serra's in public have often been defaced and they are, they don't invite tactility maybe, and they don't invite respect for their services in the way that your works do. And maybe because the surfaces demand respect that, that helps the work take care of itself. Yeah. Let's see over time. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, I read. Thank you so much. Sure. Great. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.